This is Carpe Consensus. Join hosts Ben Schiller, Danny Nelson, and Cam Thompson as they seize the world of crypto. Hello, this is Carpe Consensus. This is a podcast from the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Ben Schiller. I'm the features editor here at Coindesk. And joining me today is Cam Thompson. She is a Web3 reporter from the very same company. Cam, how are you doing? Hello, I'd hope it's the same company. I believe it's the same company. (laughs) Danny Nelson, who is our usual co-host, is off today. So this is going to be Cam and I, but we're going to have several interesting guests. So uh, we won't be too lonely here. Cam, how's your week going? Week's going fine. Um, You know, just catching up, really excited to see what's going on with these Yuga Labs Bitcoin NFTs. So kind of embracing myself all day, but, you know, won't get into NFTs too much today, but we have some exciting things to talk about. So for this week's episode, we're going to start with Inside the Desk, which is where we get into some of the biggest stories coming out of the Coindesk newsroom. And we'll be interviewing Managing Editor of Global Policy and Regulation, Nick Day, to talk through some of those. Then we're going to have Eli Scheinman, who's the head of art at Proof, which is an NFT collective that's been doing a lot of really exciting things. And then we're going to get into Cam's Corner and talk about some drama in NFT gaming community and more than gamers. All right, let's get to it. Okay, we're going to get to a new segment now that's called Inside the Desk. And we're joined by a very special guest. That's Nick Day. He is the head of regulatory coverage here at Coindesk. Hi, Nick. Hey, how's it going? It's going great. So we're going to discuss one of the really big kahunas in crypto. That's Binance. That's the world's largest crypto exchange by volume. And it's really been a slew of bad news around this giant recently. And following FTX, Binance was really seen as the big fish, uh, the one to really take the mantle from FTX and SBF. But now it's really running into its own problems. And we know that a lot of other journalists are looking into this from this outlet and other outlets. So I think we can expect some more bad news to come. And just to pick up on three stories that we published very recently on Coindesk. One was the three senators um, from Congress. That's Elizabeth Warren, Chris Van Hollen, and Roger Marshall have accused Binance of being, quote, a hotbed of illegal financial activity. All right. So that was the first Binance story. Ben, what's the next one? The second story was that an official from the SEC was on record as recently saying that uh, Binance US, which is the US arm of Binance, has been operating, quote, an unregistered security exchange in the United States. And there are also questions linked to that as to whether Binance US and Binance, the domain company, are as separate as has been claimed. So what about the third one? Forbes last week came up with a very big story that we also reported on that on a single day in August of 2022, a transaction of about $1.8 billion was basically unsecured. Um, sorry, it was, it was a stablecoin transaction. It was basically unsecured um, by collateral within uh, the finances of, of Binance for a certain period. And I think it's also worth noting that Binance's reaction to all of these journalistic questions has been somewhat petulant. You know, they, they've tended to uh, respond to questions by saying that journalists are simply spreading lies or FUD. And that's an interesting kind of modus operandi from a professional modern company to respond that way. Anyway, Nick, uh, what do you make all of all of this? And where does Binance go from here? And do you agree with this characterization that the problems are building up for the company? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll go from the last one first. I think there's definitely a lot more scrutiny now of the company. There's always been scrutiny, right? We've heard of investigations from regulators around the world for years now, but 
it does kind of seem to be in such a place that if I'm an investigator and I'm seeing these reports, oh, you know, Binance uh, actually controls bank accounts tied to Binance US or the separation is not quite as strong as they've been saying, then that's a red flag. That's something that the regular, you know, investigators and regulators are going to definitely be incorporating into whatever they eventually choose to do, but also kind of puts the pressure a little bit more on them to, to do something, right? And, you know, part of that is because, as you mentioned, Binance was really looked at as the one stalwart after FTX collapsed. And I think regulators are not going to want to allow another FTX to happen. And if Binance is, in fact, in a weird place, then regulators are going to feel the pressure to act to do something to prevent a similar kind of collapse that catches them by surprise. What that actually means for Binance, you know, it's probably a little bit too soon to say, but it, it it's definitely ramping up. We're seeing a lot more now than we did, you know, even six months ago about this company. Okay, so there's several issues going on at once and several different, you know, authorities potentially could intervene here, whether that's the SEC or Congress itself. What do you think is the most serious for the company and where do you see the action coming from? Probably twofold. For Binance US, the SEC bringing in enforcement action would probably be the biggest issue. So as you mentioned, an SEC attorney's told a bankruptcy court on Friday last week that Binance US might be operating an unregistered securities exchange. Now, this doesn't have the actual commission backing at this point. This is just a staff assertion. There's no enforcement action that we've seen yet. So it could be that this leads nowhere. The other side is the US Department of Justice, I think, might actually be the more serious contender for entity most likely to pose a danger to Binance. We know that there have been DOJ investigations that have gone on for a while. We know that Binance's view is that they'll probably have to pay a fine and settle these charges, but that's assuming that the DOJ is willing to play ball on that. If the DOJ says, okay, yeah, we're fine with settling and just you paying a fine and promising never to do anything illegal ever again, we're cool. But if the evidence is strong enough and the DOJ feels like it has enough evidence, they could actually just go for an actual enforcement action. They could sue Binance. They could charge CZ and other executives. And I think that would probably be the biggest danger, right? Well, just to game this out a little bit, I mean, you know, Binance is not any old company, right? So if in the worst case scenario, Binance did have the misfortune to be the next FTX, I mean, what would that mean for crypto, do you think? I mean, if I had to speculate, that would be catastrophic. Binance's role is not just US-centric company, and FTX wasn't either. FTX had like 100 subsidiaries but we're seeing some of these subsidiaries already start to reopen withdrawals and stuff. The damage was, I'm not going to say contained, but it wasn't as widespread as I think it could have been. But Binance has a completely different story. It's much better entrenched. It's been around for far longer than FTX ever was. It's got a much more prominent role. There's a reason we've been calling Binance the largest crypto exchange by volume for the last four or five years now. So if Binance were to get in the crosshairs or it were to collapse, that would be a really bad sign for the industry. That would be, you know, I'd go for, as far as to say it'd probably be like Mt. Gox or possibly worse than Mt. Gox, but certainly like on that level, you know, of that magnitude. So Nick, I just want to talk about this Forbes story, which uh, David Morris, our own columnist, wrote about and uh, commented upon. And there was some parallels drawn in that piece, in, in Forbes' piece and in David's piece comparing what was going on at FTX with the, with the co-mingling of funds and particularly the under-collateralization of that company's stablecoin, FTT, uh, with Binance and what was going on last summer when it seemed that Binance's own uh, stablecoin, or at least a wrapped version of USDC, was not collateralized properly at, at some 
points in time. Do you see parallels between uh, Binance and FTX, or is that sort of overplaying it, do you think? Honestly, I'm not sure. I mean, the Forbes piece, I think, did a good job of illustrating the data, but just reading that on its own, Binance has already acknowledged that it had issues in the past with how it displayed its collateral and how it handled its collateral for wrapped, you know, Binance USD. And I think probably the bigger warning sign, if anything, is, as David pointed out, the reaction to the piece from Binance. They had, I think, three or four different explanations, all of which were completely distinct from each other. If there is an innocent and easy explanation, you'd expect that to, if not be the first, at least to be consistent after you know, the initial whatever reaction it was. And Binance Chief Strategy Officer Patrick Hillman did come out and say that Forbes did not reach out for comment or give them any time to comment prior to publishing. So it's kind of understandable that their immediate reaction might not have been the clearest, but the fact that after a day they had so many different explanations, and even now I'm not sure they've given a complete answer as to what exactly was going on, that I think is probably the bigger warning sign for me. And again, you know, bring this back to FTX and Sam Bickman-Fried, Another part of the lawsuits and indictments against him point out that his public communications after FTX started collapsing, they were meant to give an impression that FTX was fine, and it was not fine. So, you know, again, these statements, these are the kinds of things that regulators and law enforcement investigators are going to be looking at. And if there is uh, inaction, then the inconsistency, I think, is going to be one of the details that the lawsuits or the, you know, indictments are going to include. Yeah. I mean, just give my own personal take. I, mean, I continue to be staggered by the kind of unprofessional communications out of what are supposed to be major billion, billion dollar companies like Binance. I mean, this is not a small company, and yet it seems to communicate over Twitter and this kind of a statement here and a statement there. I mean, this is something that JP Morgan or, you know, equivalent companies in traditional finance would never, ever do. And to have sort of five conflicting explanations for what is an important question and to react with petulance and to say that journalists are making things up and they've got an agenda and all this sort of talk is all sort of rather childish and rather rather unprofessional. So I'm just kind of staggered by that. And uh, it just seems that some of these companies are, are run by sort of uh, people who are kind of quite big on themselves and big on their Twitter accounts. And they think that that is enough uh, for communicating with the media. And it, and it really isn't. So um, just my own personal comment there. Absolutely. A lot of major companies, a lot of crypto companies even, especially in crypto, I would say, there's this tendency to wave off anything that's negative as FUD. And instead just try and say oh yeah we're doing all this cool stuff but you know you can't ignore reality okay i think we're gonna wrap that up now uh thank you very much nick day for coming on the show and for everything you do at coindesk uh, you are the preeminent regulatory reporter and editor in crypto so thank you very much for finding some time for us thanks for having me cool thanks nick Calling all early-stage crypto, blockchain, and Web3 startups, teams, and builders. Apply to Coindesk PitchFest, powered by Google Cloud, and pitch live on stage at Consensus in Austin this April. Winners will receive two VIP Piranha Passes to Consensus 2024, featured coverage on Coindesk, and an invitation to present at Coindesk's Private Investor Summit, Ideas 2023. Learn more and apply at consensus.coindesk.com slash pitchfest. All right. So this week for our special guest, we are going to be talking to Eli Scheinman, who's head of art at Proof. 
And Kevin Rose, who is Proof CEO, will be speaking at Consensus. So make sure you're down in Austin, April 26th through 29th. But Eli, let's get back to you. Could you just explain in a few words, what is Proof? Yeah, so Proof is, you know, I think really the foremost community and collective for NFT art collectors in particular. And now, so I use that distinction to say art collectors, because of course, across NFTs, there's a lot of surface area, lots of different verticals. For us, we're very deeply focused on art in particular. And that's really where all of this emanated from, you know, Kevin's deep desire and ethos around bringing collectors along for this journey of engaging with art more thoughtfully than sort of the more flipping and degen dimensions of the space. And in parallel, really supporting artists, giving them a platform, giving them the tools to unlock their creativity. Awesome. So let's just start setting the scene. Current state of NFT markets, you know, 2022 is definitely different than 2021 in terms of hype, in terms of the price of Ethereum. So in the first two months of 2023, kind of where have you, you know, where have you seen the market? How are we doing right now? Yeah, you know, I think in terms of the macro market, it's pretty evident how things are trending. But, you know, like at a community level, we've seen some interesting things happen. So, you know, I think we've seen within our community that while there's still this thirst for airdrops and more NFTs, there's also, I think, a deeper sense of thoughtfulness around uh, what does it mean to participate in a community over the long term? And I think, you know, when everything is not up and to the right, uh, it, it forces those who are participating in the space to ask those more difficult questions of why am I here if that's not always the case? And, you know, by extension, we've seen the community really foster new connections and galvanize around just showing up and engaging with artwork and having direct access to artists. So that's part of it. You know, I think given the market conditions, we've sort of seen and we've done some of this work ourselves, but of course the community participates in this. We've seen those dimensions change a little bit. I think previously it was much more as a participant in the space about buying the NFT, selling the NFT, and not really deeply engaging in those communities. And, you know, I say that at the same time, there's been churn, of course, and those who were solely here uh, with those dimensions in mind have probably churned out from the space. And so there's more work to do to onboard a broader set of folks who share that deeper ethos for long-term collecting. So Eli, I'm interested in this idea of how the NFT revolution is actually changing art itself, uh, and people talking about uh, generative art as being a native Ethereum art form. And I know it predates Ethereum and, and goes back to the 1970s, but it's really kind of come to life in the last couple of years with uh, art blocks and other projects like that. Can you talk about other ways in which NFTs and, and, and the kind of movement that we're seeing is changing art itself and how that might have a long-lasting impact going forward? Yeah, it's a great question. And I was just in LA and, and visited the coded exhibition at LACMA, looking at the pre-NFT computer and code art history, which was fascinating. Uh, so, you know, just finished gathering some of that additional context. You know, one thing, Ben, that comes to mind is something like QQL, which was this project from Dandelion Whist and Tyler Hobbs. I think over the course of the last six months or so that was released. And the, the novel dimension there that I think speaks to your question is that it was, it was a generative project. And so there was a, you know, an algorithm associated with the work, but it empowered the, the, the holder of a mint pass to participate in the creation process 
by playing with the different knobs through a user interface that allowed them to sort of customize these outputs with the algorithm. Of course, there's randomness built into the algorithm as well. So you didn't have total and high fidelity knobs to play with, but you could really inform what you ultimately got to mint. And so in that way, I think that's just an example of the way that we can use this medium to really engage collectors and those who desire to be collectors in a way that was never really possible before. And that's sort of what's most exciting to me is how can we create these unique experiences that are deeply and maybe characteristically participatory. And in doing so, better storytell or better uh, engage around a certain type of conversation or dialogue. So that's sort of uh, one of the most interesting dimensions I see happening and, and something at proof, you know, that unique experience part that we're thinking deeply about. So uh, the NFT art revolution is seen as a very democratic movement and you know that's seen as a good thing you know we're getting away from the idea of uh, auction houses like Christie's or Sotheby's kind of choosing what we can and can't look at but isn't there sort of the other end of a scale here where uh, actually we can have too much art and it's hard to know what is good and what isn't good and don't we actually need some taste making a little bit in, in, in the middle of this process I mean are people kind of bewildered by the choice that's available and it's kind of hard to know what's good and what isn't good yeah I think that's spot on Right. I, I mean, in a best case scenario, both things are true. And so what I mean by that is that everyone can participate in the creation of artwork. And then to your point, Ben, there are certain tastemakers, curation platforms that help less nuanced, sophisticated collectors filter through some of that. And I think we're seeing that emerge. And it's been true in certain respects for quite some time now. You know, you've had a super rare, which is a platform that provides a curation layer and there's an application process to release your work. And in so doing, they've been looked at as a place for collectors to immediately ascribe value and, and they know they can go there or have known that they could go there and collect. But at the same time, you have something like FX Hash on Tezos, which is entirely open. Anyone can release generative work there. And from a collector perspective, and I, and I collect there, that's exciting for some of the reasons you mentioned around the democratization of, of access, but more challenging from the collector perspective to siphon through all of those works. And so I think what we'll see is certainly supply going to continue to expand and, and probably a, a, at a, a more rapid pace. And so the role of the tastemaker, the role of the curation platform, I think becomes increasingly important here as we move forward. Just wondering uh, where you stand on the ongoing debate and battle now between uh, OpenSea, which until recently was the kind of 100,000 pound gorilla in the NFT space, kind of dominating uh, everything and, you know, leading some journalists like ask the question whether it had too much power, whether it was sort of a, a new intermediary and the rise of Blur, which is kind of proving that actually there is plenty of competition in the NFT marketplace. And, uh, you know, they've been driving down fees and, uh, doing things differently. I mean, how do you see that fight and uh, where do you see it going from here? Yeah. So, I mean, this is, uh, it's been so interesting to watch over the course of the last, uh, let's call it six, eight months. The, the space is so nascent that these norms are evolving incredibly quickly. And so we've seen this race to zero on fees and on royalties now. And, you know, the way that I see this playing out is that OpenSea has chosen their path. Right. As recently as I think, you know, last week, a couple of weeks ago, 
they changed their default user interface, their default UI, to use something that's akin to a list view, meaning you condense the artwork and you can see more works in, in one view. It's much more of the sort of blur approach, a sort of trader approach. And, you know, I think in so doing, again, they're just demonstrating that that's the, the surface area, that's the, the vertical, that's the approach that they're going to take. And by extension, what that means, and the point I'm getting to, is that I think we will see verticalized marketplaces evolve. We'll see sort of, you know, for art blocks or generative art, there will be a discrete or several discrete marketplaces for the consumption, the discovery, and ultimately the transacting around those types of works. We've seen that with SuperRare in the past. We're seeing that with a, a platform called AOTM on the one of one side now. Again, these verticalized marketplaces that I think are most interesting to me because within those marketplaces, new communities can emerge with their own set of norms around royalties and fees and artist and collector relationships. So, you know, I think the biggest players at the moment, Blur, OpenSea, my thesis is that over time, we see much of the volume of the non-PFP type project uh, move elsewhere. So a follow-up question I have on that is, you know, OpenSea is targeted towards retail traders. You know, they have a lot more individual traders on their marketplace, as opposed to Blur, which has a lot higher trading volume. However, less people are making those trades because it's targeting these pro traders courting this specific subset of collectors. So I'm curious for proof NFTs, you know, what's the breakdown like of people who are a part of this community? You know, I would assume a little bit collector, retail trader, a little bit pro trader. Um, you know, what have you seen? I'm curious. Yeah, there's a mix to your point. That's exactly right. And, you know, one of the things to, to sort of provide some additional context that that happened or is maybe sort of perpetually happening is that you have people entering the community at different moments and by extension at different price points. So when we launched the Proof Collective, that was a Dutch auction from five down to a floor of one. And it ultimately sold out, I think, you know, at one with an average price of 1.5 or so. And the folks who were, who were minting were more or less people who knew Kevin prior to any NFT stuff at all. And so by extension, you had folks who were very nascent to this space. They were not pro traders. They had just followed Kevin and were excited about learning and starting to participate in the space. When those passes ultimately went up to 100, 125 ETH, that attracted a different type and a different uh, demographic of folks and collectors. And so I think at that moment, you started to get into the, the sort of so-called whale collector, really large NFT collector, and the pro trader who saw opportunity there. And now we've seen sort of everything in between as the prices have, have gone up and come down. And again, this goes back to my earlier point. We have work to do at Proof to curate those communities more effectively, to make sure that we have people in the community representative of those, those primary goals and our, our core ethos. But, you know, I think at the moment, it is a, a bit of a mixed bag, particularly on the Moonbird side, as we, we work to curate that community in particular. On the Proof Collective side, I think we've, you know, we've got a, a group that are more or less sort of long-term NFT collectors. They're thinking about their collecting with a time horizon of years and decades, not days and weeks. Totally. And I know what you mean. A lot of people who entered the space were just trying to flip to make a quick buck. 
a lot of people not really understanding what exactly their long-term value was of these assets. And building a community is hard. It's hard to be able to get people excited about continuously coming back to one place, to one collection, to one brand. So what are some of the ways that Proof has been able to do that? You know, if you can share a few examples. Yeah, you know, this is really top of mind for us and has been an interesting transition over the course of the last couple of weeks and months. You know, we've had our Proof Collective community, which is a thousand members. And from the very beginning, the ethos of that community was very clear. It was what I mentioned earlier around better supporting artists and then also fostering this community of collectors with a shared understanding of why they were here. But we also have these subsequent communities such as Moonbirds on the profile picture side. And from the beginning, the, the ethos there was a bit more amorphous. And so what we've done over the course of the last couple months internally and then in the last couple of weeks uh, externally is really communicate the why for that community as well. To say everything proof, including Moonbirds, our adjacent communities, and of course the Proof Collective is about art and has the, these shared objectives and goals. And so that's sort of step one is to just having this clarity of vision that's communicated externally so that people know what they're signing up for. And, you know, that is going to resonate with some, and then there's going to be some churn for those who it does not resonate with. But by extension, what you have is you're curating your community around a shared goal and a shared ethos. Well, thank you so much, Eli, for joining us. That was Eli Scheinman, head of art at Proof. And make sure that you catch Kevin Rose at Consensus, April 26th through 29th. It's going to be super exciting in Austin. Hopefully we'll see some real NFTs down there, some digital art hanging up on display in the NFT gallery. Who knows? It's going to be exciting. But Eli, you've got some more of that stuff, right? I appreciate it so much, Cam and Ben. It's been great to chat. And yeah, we have an exciting drop next week with Pace Gallery and one of their artists. You know, this is just an example of sort of some of the direction we're, we're thinking about and moving in the future here. You know, NFTs on the one hand, but really bridging that world into the traditional art art side. You know, lots of opportunity and interesting things to explore there. So it's been great to chat and, uh, you know, looking forward to seeing you guys at Consensus. Your virtual reality headset is just powering on. You've left the real world, just like you've left Web2. Pixel starts to materialize ahead of you and you begin to take in your surroundings. This is the metaverse. Are there corners in the metaverse? You start to walk around, familiarizing yourself with your embodied avatar. You're looking for somewhere to go. You cross over the first hill of the vast open plain and boom, you see an arena. People gathering around watching sports. Esports as they used to call it, but this is Web3 and you see a blaring marquee sign that reads, Cam's Corner. What's up? It's Cam's Corner. Cam's Corner. <laughs> More spooky in the dystopian sense, you know? I mean, it's not like I'm going into some dungeon or there's cobwebs or anything. I mean, still scary, but we got to make it Web3 three, Web three spooky. Am I right? That's right. It's Cam's Corner. It's an exciting place to be. And what do we have this week, Cam? Today, we're talking about a recent investigative piece that I wrote about an NFT community called More Than Gamers, which is a project that's kind of been in hot water recently and speaks to what happens when unfortunate market conditions meet allegedly bad actors. So just a little bit of background, I won't get too deep into this. This project, More Than Gamers, started in December 2021 as a PFP or profile picture NFT collection that when users bought into it, they were promised a play to earn game, very exciting partnerships, a token with a liquidity pool, and 
After months and months of reinforcing these deliverables, many of the key founders stepped away. And in January, the company's founder, Aaron Kirschenberg, said he would be stepping back from the project, handing leadership over to Discord moderators. So just to give a little bit of sense why this is a big deal, people invested millions in this project. The collection was trending on OpenSea in December 2021. People bought the tokens for $800 a piece. Now they're worth about $20 each. Oops. Oof, I know. It's tough, tough out there for Ethereum. But there are a lot of questions as to where the money went and why the various partnerships and deliverables never worked out. So that's just a little bit of background. But yeah, very interesting timeline for this project. So what is the status of the project now and where does it go from here? Yeah, so the current status is after Kirschenberg stepped back at the end of January, the new Discord moderators announced that they're entirely pivoting from Web3 to Web2. And this is very strange for an NFT project, right? A lot of people are going to stick out Web3 no matter what it looks like, especially given market conditions. However, for more than gamers, the Discord moderators cited market conditions as the reason why they were going to pivot to Web2 and that it was just an easier strategy in order to build this game. So people bought NFTs expecting a Web3 game, but it looks like they're only getting a Web2 game now. Right. So, so you mentioned the market conditions, and there are a lot of uh, NFT projects that are down from their highs. And, uh, you know, that's kind of how it goes that, you know, markets go up and down and they're winners and losers. But you're suggesting in this story something more malevolent or something more human acted here, that people acted irresponsibly, that they made promises that they didn't follow through on. Is that, is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So the early group of founders have essentially all stepped out of the project. So one by one, over about a little over a year since it started, less and less people who were there since the Mint have actually been involved. And typically, that's a very bad sign that, I mean, I'm going to say it, it kind of gives rug pull. For a lot of other projects, that's what typically happens. The founders will step away and people are left without any roadmap or any plan or any idea of what's going to happen and questions as to where the money went. So a lot of those sentiments were circulating from community members. A lot of people, you know, I spoke to a few who had invested in the project since it's mint, and now they're just very confused and distraught and worried about the future when they were super excited about owning one of these more than gamers profile pictures so that they could actually take that avatar into the game. So, I mean, do you think there's any criminal activity here or is it just sort of bad faith? Well, you can look at blockchain data. Absolutely. It's interesting. That's something we did in order to kind of parse through some of these different figures and their activity in the project. Um, you can see that a couple of people had cashed out pretty soon after Mint. And, you know, we don't know where that money went, right? There aren't any allegations of criminal activity yet, but people are really questioning what's going to happen. You know, is there going to be some repercussion for people acting this way? And an interesting little tidbit is that back in September 2021, before More Than Gamers launched, Aaron Kirschenberg with his esports league TNA, which is what he was previously CEO and founder of, he partnered with another NFT project that allegedly was a rug pull called Sushiverse. So it really points to questioning what Kirschenberg's strategy is here. Are these, is this just a rug on top of a rug? Is it even a rug pull? You know, looking at all of those details, it's hard to really make that claim, but there are a lot of very convincing tidbits of evidence to lead us to believe so. And this guy, Kirschenberg, did he cooperate with the story? Yeah, so I was able to interview him, speak to an advisor at MTG, Matt Sposta. Both of them were, you know, denying a lot of claims. And in those situations, it's always 
you know, you're doing your due diligence. It's so important, but it's really important to get a lot of voices in the story and really understand from multiple perspectives what is going on. So he's denying the idea of a rug pull in. Yes. So just take a step back a moment. I mean, how did you come across this story? How did you start working on it? You know, what were the key blockers for you? Yeah, so I received a tip at the end of January after Kirschenberg had announced that he was stepping down. And this was from a community member who was feeling really confused, really worried about where the project was going, speculating that a rug pull was going on. So after that, I spoke to several other community members. I also was able to get in touch with Kirschenberg and Spasta and speak a little bit more as to what these claims were. Also, I spoke to QGlobe. And over the course of about five weeks, I was finally able to publish this. So a lot of speaking to different people involved and really ensuring that we have all perspectives in the story. And it also went through an internal legal process here as well. Yes. We had to check we got all our facts right. Yes. And Ben, thank you for editing again. Love the collab. Collab outside of Carpe. So (laughs) really appreciate it. Collab is always good. Congratulations on the story. You should definitely check that out, dear listeners. It's a terrific piece. What's the headline again? The headline is, More Than Gamers Sold a Breakthrough Web 3 Game and Delivered Empty Promises. So more details in there. I wasn't able to really give the entire timeline. Great. Uh, We'll leave a link to that in the show page. Thank you very much, Cam. Thanks. All right, that was Carpe Consensus. Thanks so much for listening this week. Make sure to tune in next Thursday. Got more exciting crypto news for you. And if you haven't bought your tickets yet, make sure you buy your tickets for Consensus. Cheers. Carpe Consensus is a Coindesk production. Executive produced by Jared Schwartz and produced and edited by Eleanor Paul. Have any questions or comments? Email us at podcasts at coindesk.com. Subject line, Carpe Consensus. Thanks for listening and see you next week.